0: to be sure, we're not going to be able to cover the entirety of Psalm 119. Uh, Just reading Psalm 119 would probably consume half of our time alone. Um, So we're only going to be looking at two stanzas, verses 38 or 33 through 48 of Psalm 119. So turning to your text If you're using your Bibles, um, you may notice, first of all, that each stanza, and each stanza of Psalm 119 is about eight verses in total, and each stanza has a center-formatted one-word title at the start of each stanza. For instance, today, verses 33 through 40 begin with, hey. And 41 through 48 begin with Vav. Now, these are two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and that's how Psalm 119 is structured. It's an um, acrostic psalm, acrostic poetry, where each stanza takes a certain letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then each line in that stanza begins with that letter in the Hebrew. So stylistically, that's what's going on in the psalm. But more importantly, the entirety of Psalm 119 focuses on one particular theme, and that theme is the Word of God or the Torah with each stanza providing a different angle on the word of God. We could look at or consider Psalm 119 almost like a kaleidoscope on the word of God. Each stanza providing a different picture on the word as we enter into the prayer life of the psalmist. And in explicating the importance of the word of God and a life nourished by it as opposed to a life nourished by worthless things, so says the language of verse 37 here, the psalmist invites us to consider the nourishment and the movement that wisdom assumes. So let's turn to the text, but before we turn to it, um, let us go to our God in prayer. Lord, your word endures forever, and it's humbling that you would give us in your grace these words of life. So I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. All right, turning to the text, Psalm 119, verses 33 through 48. I'm going to continue the trend that Jeff set, or the precedent that Jeff set a few weeks ago. If you would please stand, if you're able, as we read the word of God. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimony before kings, and shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. As we've worked through several different psalms this morning or this summer, specifically the different categories of the psalms, moving in and out of psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of praise, and so forth, we've seen just how variegated the psalms truly are in that they open up for us a full range of expressions befitting the Christian life some of which may be more accented during certain seasons of our lives than others, but all of which are appropriate for the entirety, the totality of the Christian life. And we've discussed this summer what it looks like for us to cultivate each one of these expressions as a central part of our worship and as a central part of our being as Christians. Simply, what does it look like in our lives for us to cultivate thanksgiving or to cultivate lament These are expressions that should be central to our worship, our communion with God, and our being as Christians. And the hope is that we've talked about how to cultivate, what it looks like to cultivate each one of those expressions in the Christian life. So with that background to our series in mind, this morning we're approaching a psalm that commentators appropriately label a wisdom psalm. Now, a wisdom psalm is Basically, a psalm that lays out two courses of life, one that leads to wisdom and human flourishing, and another that leads to spiritual ruin, calling us, of course, to follow one of those ways and not the other. I'll let you figure out which one of those ways we are to follow. Uh, So consequently, as we unpack this psalm, we're going to see what cultivating true wisdom looks like in the Christian life. And we'll see in particular that true wisdom is intimately connected to the Word of God and the grace of God. We could consider the word of God to be the locus of wisdom. Wisdom can't be divorced from it, or it's not really wisdom. And for that, we didn't read this text. We read it in the first service, but the scripture reading in the first service was from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. And I would encourage you to look at that text at some point today or this week, just as a reinforcement of where true wisdom is found. Wisdom of the cross, versus the wisdom of this world. One is true wisdom, one is folly. But in probing this beautiful picture of the substance of wisdom in our psalm this morning, where we basically are thrust into the prayer life of the psalmist to observe and hopefully absorb the movements that wisdom takes, we also come across in this text, as you may have noticed and even the, even the hymn we sung today or in the scripture reading initially, we come across these seemingly over-the-top Sheer statements of determination that may leave us wondering whether or not cultivating wisdom is simply a matter of our resolve to obey God, to follow the right path, and little else. For instance, the psalmist boldly declares in the opening verse, he says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Then in verse 44, the psalmist declares, I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. In verse 45, the psalmist unabashedly declares that I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. And then finally, in verse 46, he declares, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. Now, friends... These are obviously not light declarations of resolve. And without context, it may make it seem as if cultivating wisdom or choosing the right path is simply a matter of practicing this over-the-top obedience by the sheer determination of our will. But if that's all that's involved in cultivating wisdom, the determination that we will obey, the determination that we will choose the right path, and little or nothing undergirding that, then we really don't have a whole lot of hope, do we? Think as an illustration about New Year's resolutions. Who here has ever made a New Year's resolution? And then the follow-up question, who has actually kept that New Year's resolution? Uh, case in point, all you, need to go, all you need to do is on the first week in January, go to the gym, and then go to the gym in the first week in February and just observe. I think I read something like only eight, or 80% of people that purchase gym memberships in January don't go back again. Um, that's how the gyms make their money. But I'm only speculating why this is, but my suspicion is that far too many resolutions of that sort and others are made without truly taking stock of everything that's involved including the costs, especially, specifically as far as gym memberships are concerned, taking, taking stock of the cost of having to wake up early and carving out time in your schedule to actually go to the gym. And then probably if you want to see results, you got to change your dietary lifestyle. And all that's involved in really making a resolution. So perhaps when we read these striking resolutions then in the psalm, they seem admirable and worthy for us to imitate. After all, who among us wouldn't want to keep the statutes of the Lord to the end? But perhaps, based on our experience, we suspect that it's unlikely it's as simple as sheer resolve or force of will. Rather, when we understand the psalmist on his own terms and when we move through this entire psalm with the goal of understanding what drives the psalmist, what's at the heart of the psalmist, what we'll discover is that these, these notes of sheer resolve, important as they are, are only the tip of an iceberg. If you think of the imagery of an iceberg, you have only a little bit outside of the water and beneath the icy waters, there's a whole mass line underneath there. And I think this imagery applies quite well here because underneath the icy waters, what we'll see in the life of the psalmist is a full orbed picture of someone who is resolute, yes, but someone who is resolute who understands the scriptures deeply, who is deeply humble and dependent on God, who gives understanding, and who inclines our hearts to cheerful obedience And in his word. I like something that Charles Spurgeon writes commenting on this text. He writes that those who are taught of God never forget their lessons— But those who commence without the Lord's teaching soon forget what they learn and start aside from the way upon which they professed to have entered. See, cultivating wisdom doesn't begin with our sheer resolve to obey or to live Christianly in our ethics, even though that's good and that's wise. Instead, it requires that our whole lives be nourished through and through by the word of God, by the promises of God, and that we actually delight in God. In this way, cultivating wisdom is an invitation for us all to first plunge into the depths of the gospel and to reshape our world and life view according to the grace of God. So with that said, what precisely does it look like from this psalm to cultivate wisdom? Well, from this text, we learn that a life that cultivates wisdom is first rooted in divine revelation. It, too, rests in our deliverance and three, it's resolute in delight. Delight actually for God and the will of God. So to repeat, it's rooted, it rests, and it's resolute. That's our outline. So first, a life that cultivates wisdom is rooted in divine revelation. Now, the entire quest for wisdom for the psalmist and for us is, is uh, rooted in and predicated on the word of God and the grace of God. And there's a resounding note, even despite all of these notes of resolution in the psalm, there's a resounding note of humility that reverberates through the entire psalm because the psalmist knows where true wisdom is ultimately found. He knows where the source of wisdom ultimately lies. And he knows that it's not in some innate ability in himself to discern the path of human flourishing based upon what sounds good or fitting or right to his own ears. It's first and foremost rooted in the word of God. The statutes, the commandments, the law, the promises. We have a panoply of these terms used in this psalm, but collectively, they all are referring to the word of God. And this word of God is then brought to understanding by the grace and the work of God. We'll talk about both of those features here. And this first point, though, the word of God is critical to grasp. If we miss this first point, we miss the source of wisdom, and we miss wisdom altogether. And that is for cultivating wisdom— Cultivating true human flourishing, the psalmist turns to the Word of God. Now, to be sure, this seems fairly obvious for us as Christians. Of course, we know it's right for us to turn to the Word of God, and it's appropriate for us. But it's also appropriate that we regularly remind ourselves as Christians why it's fitting and right for us to turn to the Word of God, to reflect upon the beauty and the majesty of the Word of God, the very natures of the Scripture. And why it's fitting that that is the source of wisdom, especially when we're being flung so many other competing narratives of where wisdom is centrally found in our day-to-day lives. So for this, I actually love what our confession has to say on scripture. Uh, And the first chapter of Westminster Confession of Faith, and um, a fun factoid for everybody sitting here, if you open up your Trinity hymnals in the very back, you get a full Westminster Confession of Faith at your disposal in worship. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, nobody's as excited as I am about that. But anyway, so if you care to turn there, feel free to turn there. Don't worry if you don't. Uh, But in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we read a lot about Scripture. We read about the books that comprise the canon of Scripture. simply gives us a list of the 66 books of Scripture. We learn about the authority of the Word of God and so forth. But in Section 5, Chapter 1, Section 5, the confession reflects for us on the internal attributes of Scripture. In other words, it it essentially asks the question and answers it, what's so unique about the scriptures that it evident itself to be the word of God and thus fitting that we feast on it as such? And we read this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, section five. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of holy scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now that's a mouthful. I understand that. Uh, And it's probably wise that we go back to the confession and we read it clause by clause because it's not really an easy read despite it being a summary of the faith. There's some difficult things to grasp and understand there. But in summary, Uh, To quote Mike Kruger, who reflects on this section of the confession in his excellent book, Canon Revisited, if you ever want to have any questions about the canon, look at Canon Revisited, excellent book by Mike Kruger, he writes this, commenting on the uh, confession here. He writes, one knows the scriptures are from God because they bear the beauty and perfection of God. And that's exactly what the confession is telling us here. The attributes of scripture are the attributes of God himself. The scriptures also have rhetorical force and aesthetic beauty as we probably understand when we read the scriptures, but they also have much more than that. There's a spiritual beauty to the scriptures that leads Calvin to say that the scriptures are quote, clearly crammed with thoughts that could not be humanly conceived. They also display remarkable unity and consistency throughout, as the confession tells us. And Irenaeus, early church father, writing around 180 AD, he writes this about the consistency of scripture. He says, "All Scripture, which has been given to us by God, shall be found by us perfectly consistent, and through the many diversified utterances of Scripture, 66 books in total there shall be heard one harmonious melody in us praising in hymns the God who created all things. And the scriptures ju- do just that when we encounter them. They drive us to worship. They renew us in the gospel, and they renew us in the majesty of Jesus Christ. This is the bedrock that the psalmist builds his petitions upon because the psalmist surely experienced each one of these attributes of scripture as he sat under the Torah and studied the Torah sure the psalmist did not have the Westminster Confession of Faith at his disposal, but he nevertheless saw, I'm sure, these attributes at play as he studied and meditated on the word of God day and night. It's only inevitable that as he opened the scrolls of Torah, he would have seen these attributes play themselves out. But with this implicit bedrock in mind, the psalmist is also abundantly aware in our text that because it is God's word, the only hope of appropriating and understanding the word of God is by the grace of God. Look with me for a moment at the movement of the psalm, specifically the Hay Stanza. He begins with the petition that God would teach him his statutes, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, but by way of a primer, how often, if at all, is that prayer central in our prayer life? Calvin points this out in his commentary, writing, the majority of mankind think of anything rather than this, as that which they ought to ask from God. But if this is truly the divine diet of wisdom at our disposal, the word of God in, in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament, why wouldn't we ask God to teach us from it? It's only fitting in right that we would. Because we need the grace of God to understand and to rightly handle and appropriate the word of God. And this is exactly the movement of the hey stanza where the psalmist leads. Because following the first petition, the psalmist continues pleading with God, give me understanding that I may keep your law, and then lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart, in verse 36, turn my eyes. In verse 37, confirm to your servant your promises. In verse 38, friends, as we're invited into the prayer life of the psalmist here, we discover the centrality of God's revelation and and grace as the root of all true wisdom. And at the same time, one of the unique aspects about this source of wisdom at our disposal, in contrast to other sources of wisdom, is that true biblical wisdom is accessible to all kinds of people. It's not like Gnosticism, which was a secret kind of wisdom available only to those who ascended to it in an ethereal sort of way. The revelation of God, as we learn from the Old Testament, was before the assembly of Israel in smoke and fire at Mount Sinai. And it's not wisdom accessible only to those with rare intellectual faculties as the Greek philosophical schools maintain. It's the body of wisdom that the God of the universe has imparted to his church. And then he gives us the grace to understand it. The internal testimony of the Holy Spirit As we saw in the confession in chapter 1, section 5, it talked about that inner testament of the Holy Spirit, which helps us understand the scriptures and confirms to our hearts that they really are the word of God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean at the same time that there are no nuggets of wisdom to be found elsewhere. All truth is God's truth, and we believe in something called common grace, where God gives wisdom in other sorts of ways, but What it does mean is that the wellspring of all wisdom is found in the scriptures. And that's why the petitions of the psalmist are, from start to finish, rooted in the Word of God. They're rooted in divine wisdom. And in his petitions, there are also humble notes of trust in the God of deliverance. And this leads to our next point. Second, a life that cultivates wisdom is a life that rests in our deliverance. There's something going on in the background of this psalm <clears throat> that, uh, in the psalmist's life, which is more implicit than explicit, especially in the second stanza, the vav stanza of the psalm. Again, we don't know the identity of the psalmist, nor do we know his situation, but apparently he's in a pretty desperate situation where someone or some group of people are taunting him. In verses 41 and 42, he asks God to fulfill the promises so that, in part, he can answer him who taunts me. The language indicates that this is probably a reference to some kind of verbal assault, though, of course, the precise nature of this taunt or this assault, we can't be sure. But the point is that rest and relief from these taunts, as the psalmist sees it and as the psalmist expresses, and surely we can expand this more generally to say that true rest in general lies squarely in the steadfast love of the Lord. Once again, that word hesed pops up once again in the Psalms that we've seen so much, probably in just about every Psalm we've looked at this summer. In other words, a life that cultivates true wisdom is a life that has learned and is learning that despite our darkest days, despite whatever taunts we hear from the world, the flesh, and the devil— Catechism language, that rest is ultimately found in the work of God on our behalf. And we hear similar echoes of deliverance elsewhere in this psalm too. The psalmist asks in verse 38 for God to confirm or establish his promise. In verse 39, for God to, to turn away this reproach, whatever that might have been. <clears throat> and then in verse 40, for God to act in righteousness. See, a life that cultivates true wisdom. Is a life that, yeah, it's rooted in the word of God, but it's also a life that trusts the promises of God and that rests in God, in His Hesed, in His steadfast love to confirm and fulfill those promises. To summarize, a life that cultivates wisdom is a life that freely communes with God because that's where rest, despite the tensions of life, is centrally found. One of my favorite Psalms, <clears throat> Psalm 73. It's another wisdom psalm in the psalm corpus, illustrates this picture so well because, and I'm going to turn to this text myself, just reference a few verses to in it, but this psalm, Psalm 73, it appears that the psalmist there is faced with an analogous situation that the psalmist is faced with here in Psalm 119. The opening verses of Psalm 73 indicate that this psalmist here is caught in some type of similar turmoil that he can't seem to resolve. Perhaps it's even a tension if you read through that psalm that hit, hits home for us. They're sort of those mega meta uh, theodicy questions that we all have from time to time. Why is it, he asks, do these arrogant and wicked and foolish people, again, not quite sure who he has in mind, but why do they seem to prosper in their functional atheism while I suffer adversity and reproach? this is at the center, at the heart of Psalm 73, in the petition that the psalmist levies before God. And as the psalmist continues to ponder this question night and day, enraptured in the turmoil of this meta-question, he finally comes to a state of overwhelming peace when, as verse 17 tells us of Psalm 73, he went into the sanctuary of God and discerned their end. When he draws near to God, And he makes God his refuge and communes with God in light of God's promises and character. That's when he receives an answer. And that doesn't mean, friends, that all the issues suddenly evaporated and the tension was somehow resolved and he was singing a hymn and walking on his merry way. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that what the psalmist had forgotten, the promises of God, the character of God, were immediately resolved when he met with God when he remembered the character and the promises of God. And that rest that he found there was able to then move him from turmoil to true rest in God. And friends, as those who stand in this new covenantal redemptive historical epic, having at our disposal more revelation than any of the psalmists in the psalm corpus had, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ the author of Hebrews tells us in the prologue that, the, that the, in former times the prophet spoke, but in these last days we hear from the Son, the revelation of the Son of God. How much fuller is our rest, friends? We look back on the finished work of Christ, and we see in him how all of the promises of God find their yes, and as such we utter our amen to God. And this is where the author of Hebrews goes in Hebrews 3 and 4, where he tells us that we, as, new te- as believers, we enter into an eschatological rest by hearing the revelation of Christ, which is at our disposal, who is greater than Moses, and then walking in faith accordingly. Cultivating wisdom, then, in the Christian life has as its starting point rest. But this isn't rest in the sense of rest and cessation from all activity but rest in our deliverance in Christ. Rest that freely communes with our God. Rest that frees us and propels us to worship. Rest that releases us to obey with delight the commandments of our God. A life that cultivates wisdom first rests in the deliverance wrought by Christ and communes with God in the promises of God. Then this leads to our final point. Finally, a life that cultivates wisdom wisdom is a life that is resolute in delight. Now, in a sense, we've come full circle to the questions that we posed in the introduction. The question was posed, what do we do with these seemingly over-the-top notes of resolve on the lips of the psalmist? Is cultivating wisdom, choosing the right path, simply a matter of sheer determination, divorced from any substance or gospel substructure? Well, of course not. Rather, these notes of determination and resolve, as we've just seen, are rooted in the context of the life of the psalmist, who, as we've seen, depends on the word of God and the grace of God for wisdom, and then rests in the deliverance of God based on his promises. And it's only when the Christian life is rooted from start to finish as such that we can resolve and delight to tread the path of wisdom as the psalmist does. Picture with me, as an illustration real quick. Again, I know I'm moving around to various other texts, but I'm going to keep doing it and do it one more time. Uh, I'm going to go to Isaiah 6 for a moment. Isaiah 6 is a text I know Jeff has referred to quite a bit. It's a text we refer to quite a bit. It's actually a text, if you didn't know, that has a lot of influence on the way we structure our corporate worship service. Um, But in in, uh, Isaiah 6, this text begins with Isaiah, prophet Isaiah receiving a vision of the throne room of God. And he's thrusting this vision into the throne room of God, and he has this vision of the train of God's robe filling the entire temple, the entire sanctuary. And there are these otherworldly creatures, these seraphim, who are covering their faces because they can't stand to be amongst the glory of God. He's too holy for even for them. And these seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah, face to face with this vision, as you can imagine, is absolutely undone because he's a sinner in the presence of a holy God, a holy God that these seraphim can't even look at. But just at that moment, one of the seraphim comes down, descends to him, and touches his lips with a burning coal, a symbolic representation of atonement, and declares, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And how does Isaiah respond a few verses after that? Here am I, send me. That's, there is a clear movement in this text, in Isaiah 6, that mirrors the movement that we've been discussing in our text. It's a movement that begins with an encounter with divine revelation. Of course, for Isaiah, that was this um, vision of the throne room of God. For us, it's the scriptures of the word of God which then rests in the deliverance and the promises of God, and then in freedom resolves to do whatever the Lord calls us to do, resolves to follow the will of God, just as Isaiah stands willing and open to do whatever the Lord calls him to do. This is the movement of wisdom. Furthermore, it's important to note that the psalmist doesn't make these resolves or isn't resolute in this way to keep the law out of fear of the consequences or because of peer pressure. He does so because he delights in the word of God, and he delights in his God and Father. He tells us in verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Lincoln Duncan and a whole, other, a whole host of other people have made the point that the only way that we'll pursue true biblical wisdom is if our lives are captivated by a greater delight that can deliver us from the scraps we so often settle for. And this is precisely what C.S. Lewis tells us in a famous quote from his book, The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis tells us this. He says, It would seem to us that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. And in a very real sense, this psalm calls us to confession, and that it calls out the implicit reality that our lives are so often delighting in worthless things, at least worthless things when measured relative to the surpassing greatness of Christ and his gospel. So, where is our delight? Do we delight in the God, our God and the God of the gospel? Many of us know, for instance, the basics of Reformed doctrine. But has that doctrine taken root in that it influences everything about the way we move in the world, everything about the way we love God and love others? Do we approach the word of God as something to delight in, in our inner being? Or is the word of God for us more of a tool in our tool belt, maybe to show other people why they're wrong? Does the word of God release you in freedom to love richly? When we look at the psalmist, it's clear that his delight is in God and his word drives these resolutions such that he says he'll even speak of the Lord's testimonies before kings. What does that remind you of? be Paul in Acts 9, where after his conversion, Jesus says that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And that's precisely what Paul does. But from what we know of the life of Paul, from Acts and his letters, what drives Paul isn't guilt. What drives Paul is an absolute delight in the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, his Lord, for whom he would even give his life. True biblical wisdom then, choosing the will of God over worthless things requires that a firm and steadfast delight in God and his word evidence itself at the very core of our lives. And the only way that it's going to take root isn't through osmosis. It's not through spiritual hype. It comes through rooting ourselves day and night in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament and then resting in freedom in the gospel and the God of the gospel. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would be a church that absolutely delights in you, A church that's rooted in your word, a church that rests in the salvation wrought to us in Jesus Christ, and a church as such that delights, that evidences that delight in the way that we love God, the way we love our neighbors, the way we love one another. Will we be a church known, yes, for our reformed theology and our fidelity to scriptures, but also a church known for the degree in which we love our God and love our neighbors? Lord, would our delight be in this way of wisdom that's drawn out for us in the scriptures? Would you help us fight against the competing narratives that so often tell us that wisdom is found elsewhere centrally? And would you root us again and again in the scriptures and in the God of the scriptures in whom we find our delight? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.